Take a Bible tonight and find Ecclesiastes 7. Last week we looked at the first half of Ecclesiastes 7. Tonight we're going to talk about the second half of Ecclesiastes 7. The title of this sermon is Righteousness and Wickedness. As I prepare for these Ecclesiastes sermons, I have six books that I'm using. And they're all different, different approaches, different styles. So I've got six books. So I got them out a few weeks ago to begin working on this section of verses. And I read the first one. I won't tell you which one it is on that stack. It's not the top. But I read the first one that I always read. I have the same order every week. No surprise if you know me. Do everything the same. I read the first one. And I got to the end of what it had to say about these verses. And I closed the book. And I said to myself, I have no idea what he just said about anything in that section. So good news, I have five more books. So I'll put that one aside. Took the second book, uh, opened it, and I found discussion about previous chapters. And I found discussion about later chapters. And I found that they had conveniently skipped chapter 7. So I thought, well, that's okay. That's just two books down. I have four to go. And the next two were moderately helpful. And uh, I did have two that were helpful in confirming some of my hunches as I had studied the passage on my own and then answering a few of the questions that had been raised as I looked at the verses and read the passage. Uh, Dr. Garrett's commentary on Ecclesiastes and uh, Sidney Greedness's book on preaching Ecclesiastes, both very, very helpful. So, Greedness says this, um, and I, I echo what he says here and say amen. This is one of those passages that sets preachers to pacing in their studies, wringing their hands. What does it mean? How do we preach it? The temptation will be great to either skip over it or to preach on just a few verses. Yet it is an extremely relevant passage that deals with some of the most perplexing questions we have. Why do some good people die young while some criminals live to a ripe old age? You remember what we read in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper and you don't do anything about it? Your people are suffering and the wicked are prospering. God, what's going on? So this passage is dealing with the same sorts of questions. Uh, I'll be honest with you, when I read this section, it's not entirely clear that this is a section as a unit of verses. And I questioned that as I was studying and preparing. But if you go backwards, everyone pretty much agrees that there's a section that runs from Ecclesiastes 7.1 to verse 14, which is what we talked about last week. That's a section. And pretty much everyone agrees that a new section begins somewhere around 8.1 or maybe 8.2. And so we're going to talk about that after spring break. And that just leaves these middle groups of verses that, to be honest with you, some people say, I don't really know what to do with that. But I think Greedness is on the right track when he says that these verses are dealing with some of the perplexing questions we ask. So here's my attempt at a summary of this odd section in Ecclesiastes. When we wrestle with the paradoxical nature of life on earth, we must remember to fear God And we must remember that we live in a fallen, sinful world. And I hope that we'll unpack that sort of big idea, different pieces of it, as we move through the text tonight. 
Let me start with this word paradox. What in the world is a paradox? I'll just give you a definition. Paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated or explained may, may not, but it may prove to be well-founded and true. That's a paradox. Okay? This is a little bit different than what we would call an oxymoron. An oxymoron is more like a phrase. An oxymoron is two words with opposite meanings, and you mash them together, and you have something that means kind of something different. Like, you go to Red Lobster and you say, I'll take the jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron, right? It's like Shakespeare saying, parting is sweet sorrow. Well, which one is it? Well, kind of depends, doesn't it? Sweet sorrow. Uh, oxymorons. Somebody says, hey, do you want to come over later? And you say, I'm a definite maybe. That's an oxymoron. Two words. They don't mean the same thing. You mash them together, you get something new. So all sorts of oxymorons. A paradox is a little bit bigger than that. It's fuller than that. It's more than just a phrase or a, a short little concept, but it's more of a statement or an argument that could be a paradox. That would be the noun, or if you're using it as an adjective, you would say that idea is paradoxical. And what the preacher is acknowledging is that there is a paradox that we wrestle with when we think about life in this earth. So just an example of a, a paradox, George Orwell wrote a book called Animal Farm. Uh, and at some point, the pigs pipe up and say, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. On the face of it, you say that's absurd. That's self-contradictory. You're making a claim that doesn't seem to fit together. You might explain it, and it might prove to be truthful, or you might explain it, and it might just be absurd and self-contradictory. But that's the idea of a paradox. Now, moving past Orwell, for the Hebrew people, all the way through the Old Testament, they wrestled with a great paradox. And it's a paradox that Christians and philosophers and pastors and people like yourselves they still wrestle with, we still wrestle with today. And here's the paradox. In the Old Testament, God promised, I could give you multiple verses, He promised long life to the righteous. So you can see that in the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20, 12. Uh, you can find it in Deuteronomy 4, when Moses is preparing the people to enter the promised land. Um, you can find it in the book of Proverbs. You find these places in the Old Testament where God seems to be saying to His people, if you will listen to me, and if you'll do what I say, you will have long, prosperous lives. And the Hebrew people were no smarter or dumber than you and me. They looked around and they said, okay, God has said this, but sometimes we see uh, the righteous people suffering. And we see people doing what God calls us to do, and their life is cut short. And then Psalm 73, Asaph says, sometimes I look at the wicked and they're the ones prospering. But God said the righteous would be the ones prospering. One of the things we've talked about in Ecclesiastes is that a lot of the wisdom in Ecclesiastes has been discovered piecemeal in bits by non-Christian people. So let me not quote a, a Hebrew prophet, let me quote a Gentile prophet named Billy Joel. He wrote a song called 
Only the good die young. You heard this song? You know this song? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know that only the good die young. That's Billy Joel. And in a roundabout way, it's Asaph in Psalm 73. The wicked are prospering. They're, they're getting ahead. Everything's going their way. Your people are suffering. In the Hebrew, people are wrestling with this paradox. They're trying to fit these ideas together that God has promised blessing for those who are righteous, and yet many times it's the wicked who are prospering. So the very, very simple way that we sometimes ask this question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? I think that's what the preacher, Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, is driving at in this passage to help us think through that question and process that question. So let's just start by reading a few verses. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. He says, In my vain life, and if you've been here, you know that vain or vanity doesn't mean meaningless. It doesn't mean purposeless. It doesn't mean of no value. It means smoke, breath, mist, vapor. In my very brief life, my vain life, I have seen, he says, everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So, let's make a few comments here. The preacher begins by noting the brevity or the vanity of his life. Not the meaninglessness, not the purposelessness, not the valuelessness, but the brevity of his life. And he talks about the expansiveness of his experience. Verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. So Johnny Cash sang a song, and he said, I've been everywhere, man. Everywhere. The preacher had his own version and said, I've seen everything, man. I hadn't been around for a real long time. My life is vain, short, it's like smoke. I'm on the clock under the sun, but I've seen it all. And then he gives us this big example. He draws our attention to the great paradox of Hebrew life. Many times the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper. Many times the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper. My suggestion to you is that the rest of what we talk about in this passage, the rest of Ecclesiastes 7. It's, it's the preacher's attempt to give an answer to that question. Now, what you want him to do is just come right out and say, here's the answer. He doesn't do that. And guess what? The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not completely resolve the problem of evil for the people of God. It calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. But what's happening in this chapter is sort of like when you were in middle school, high school, and you were taking a final exam, and it was multiple choice, and you came to a question, and you did not know the answer, 
you looked at the question, you said, I don't know the answer to this. But then you thought, maybe I can eliminate some of these possibilities. And you look down at C and you say, I don't think there's any way C is the answer. I don't think so. And then you look up at A and you say, you know, maybe, but it just doesn't sound right. Something's off and you scratch A off. And maybe you boil it down to B or D and you have a better idea of what the actual answer might be. What the preacher's doing is he's posing this question. He's presenting us with this problem. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked are prospering? And rather than just coming out and giving us an answer, the Bible doesn't ever do that. The preacher doesn't do that. He starts to take things off the table. And he starts to frame the discussion with what you might think of as guardrails on a highway. right? He's putting you on the highway. He's pointing you in the direction that this question is aiming. And he's saying, you've got to drive, as you think about this and wrestle with this, you've got to drive inside the guardrails. You can't go off the highway this way. You've got to barrier. You can't go off the highway that way. You've got to stay in this lane as you wrestle with this question. So let's just wrestle with it. Without solving the paradox, the preacher offers five pieces of advice, and we'll just tick these off one at a time. The first one is do not be self-righteous. And I understand that in the ESV, what he actually says is be not overly righteous. But most commentators think the idea that he's driving at here is self-righteousness. Don't be righteous in your own eyes. He's not saying, try to be good but not too good. He's saying, don't be a self-righteous person. If it were Jesus speaking in the New Testament, he might say, don't be like the Pharisees. They think that they'll be heard. They think that they'll be saved because of their own righteousness. Don't be self-righteous. Secondly, he says, don't be a know-it-all. Don't be a know-it-all. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. He's not saying that you should try to be a little bit dumb. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in this verse, don't think of yourself too highly in terms of righteousness or wisdom. Don't be self-righteous and don't be a know-it-all. Okay? Those are important guardrails when you're wrestling with this question of why are the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering, okay? You can ask that question, but as you ask it, don't be self-righteous and don't act like you know everything. Those are two guardrails. Here's two more guardrails. Uh, This is the third one on the list. Do not be wicked. Don't be wicked. That's verse 17a. And then 17b, don't be a fool. Don't be self-righteous, don't be a know-it-all, don't be wicked, don't be a fool. Lots of don'ts. What do we do? Well, positively, we fear God. Those are the initial guardrails he's setting up for our consideration, for our discussion, for our debate, for our wrestling with this question. Don't be self-righteous, don't be a know-it-all, don't be wicked, don't be a fool. Fear God. Now, I don't know what kind of Bible translations you carried in here tonight. I read and teach out of the ESV because it's one of the most literal uh, Bible translations. Literal Bible translations are much better for serious Bible study than for looser translations and paraphrases. It's why you really, if you're wanting to study the text seriously and you're not a language expert, which guess what? None of us in this room are, myself included. It's good to have an English translation that is as close to the original as possible. 
Now I realize in verse 18, the ESV says this, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Some of you are reading your translation and you're like, my verse 18 doesn't say anything close to that. And this is what I'm going to acknowledge to you. This is Hebrew poetry and the poetry in verse 18 is really hard to translate. And really, really smart people look at it and say it's not entirely clear what he's driving at. It's not entirely clear how we can best translate that idea. But the clear contrast in this section is between verse 16 and 17 and then verse 18. Everyone pretty much agrees on that. That's the contrast. So he's setting this up. He's framing this issue for us. And he's saying, as you wrestle with this question... Don't be a self-righteous person. Don't be a know-it-all. Don't be wicked. And don't be a fool. You've got to stay away from those things. And positively, what you're called to do is fear God. And when it says the one who fears God will come out from both of them, he's talking about both of them. The error of verse 16. If you're proud and self-righteous, and a know-it-all. And then he's talking about the error of verse 17, if you're wicked and foolish, the person who fears God will avoid both of those mistakes. The call on your life is to fear God. So the question is, why are the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? That question has not been answered. It's not been solved. But one of the things the preacher is saying to you is your obedience and your goodness and your learning and your wisdom are not going to keep you from suffering. And if you think that your righteousness, your goodness, your obedience, your learning, your knowledge, your wisdom, your insight are going to keep you from suffering, you've missed the whole point already and you've gone off the tracks. If you think that none of it matters one way or the other and you can just live however you want to live and be as foolish as you want to be and as wicked as you want to be, you've also gone off the tracks. So he's framing this for us. Now, the next section starts in verse 19. And I want to describe it to you and then I want to read it. Ecclesiastes 7, 19 to 22 functions as an interlude in this passage. And in this interlude, the preacher reflects on the nature of wisdom and folly, righteousness and wickedness. Now, you understand why he's reflecting on wisdom and folly and wisdom and uh, wisdom and folly and righteousness and wickedness. You understand why he's taking an interlude to talk about those things? Because he's just said, don't be self-righteous and don't be a know-it-all. And don't be foolish and don't be wicked. And so we're saying, we're, we're kind of disoriented. We're, he's not answering the question we expected him to answer. And so he's going to stop and talk about wisdom and folly and righteousness and wickedness. So look at verse 19, 20, 21, and 22. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. That might be my favorite verse in Ecclesiastes, by the way. So what's happening here? The preacher offers 
helpful reflections on wisdom and folly and righteousness and wickedness. Number one, while wisdom may not be able to keep you from all suffering, wisdom is valuable and it is powerful. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, not next week, but the week after when we come back from spring break. Wisdom will not prevent you from suffering. It will not. That's not the point of wisdom. Being obedient to God will not keep you from suffering. That's not the point of being obedient to God. The preacher does want you to know that wisdom is valuable and it is powerful. It's not valuable and powerful in that it will keep you from all suffering, but it does, he says, give you some advantage over ten rulers who are in a city. Ten people with titles and positions and degrees and diplomas and credentials who lack wisdom. If you have wisdom, you have an advantage over those people. So wisdom is valuable. And just because it's not going to prevent you from suffering doesn't mean you should give up on wisdom. You should seek wisdom. It's valuable and it's powerful. In the 16th century, a man named Sir Francis Bacon said, knowledge itself is power. Now, he wasn't driving at the exact same thing that the preacher was driving at, but the ideas are not all that dissimilar. Knowledge is power. Learning is power. Education is power. Learning things and having understanding and insight and discernment and wisdom is valuable, and it does make a difference. Is it going to keep you from suffering? Not necessarily, but it is valuable and it is powerful. Secondly, some men can be rightly called righteous, but there is no righteous man who never sins. That's verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So if you've ever read through the Old Testament, it's possible that you have read about Noah, who was a righteous man. Righteous in his generation. And he also got drunk and passed out naked in his tent after he got off the ark. He was a righteous man. He had faith in God. Was he a perfect, sinless man? No. Maybe you've read the book of Job, which is also incidentally a book about suffering. Job was righteous and blameless. And at the end of the book, he had to repent because he got too mouthy with God. And he said, I repent in dust and ashes. I talked about stuff I had no business talking about. I was punching above my pay grade. He was a righteous man. Was he a perfect, sinless man? No. David, in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 7, 8, David says, God, judge me according to my righteousness. And you think to yourself, hey, that's pretty rich for a murderer and an adulterer. Judge me according to my righteousness. David, do you want to take that back? You want to rethink that? David was a righteous man. He was a man after God's own heart. Was he perfect? Was he sinless? Far from it. So it's, it's fine biblically. It's right biblically to talk about a person as a righteous person, a person who has faith in God. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was a righteous man who trusted God and who followed God. Was he a sinless man? No. No. And the preacher's making the point, there is not a righteous person on the earth who does good and never sins. What does that have to do 
with the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering? Well, the way we ask the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? What the preacher is saying is, parentheses, there are no good people. There's righteous people who have faith in God. God has credited him with, with this righteousness. And the pattern of their life is they follow God and they trust God. But there are no truly morally good people. None. Number three. While other people will certainly have opinions about our lives, those opinions should not bother us. And this is the part about don't take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know that many times you've cursed others. People are going to talk about you at some point in your life. And the preacher is basically saying that kind of has to be like water on the duck's back. You kind of got to let that go. Why would he bring that up in a discussion about righteous people suffering and the wicked prospering? Well, have you read the book of Job? Where a righteous, blameless man is suffering and his friends showed up and they had all sorts of opinions about what was going on in Job's life and they were all wrong. Job, don't listen to those people. Just let it go. Let it go. When you suffer, not if, when you suffer, there will be people on the outside who look in on your life and they will have opinions about what's going on. Oh, I know what's going on. I know why this is happening to you. I could have told you. Could have listened to me. Could have listened to the preacher. Should have not skipped Wednesday night church. Man. Don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So, three helpful reflections about suffering and righteousness and wickedness and folly and all the rest. Let's look at the next group of verses. It starts in verse 23 and goes to 29. I'll be honest with you, this is the section of the passage where I came away saying, did you really just say that? What am I supposed to say to these people on a Wednesday night, these good folks who come, when we read these verses, and then I have to make sense of this for them? This is, there's some head scratchers in here. Verse 23 to the end. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I've not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So, let's make sense of that. The preacher ends this section, and he's talking about, I think I left the word about 
off on your notes. So that's my typo. The preacher ends this section by talking about things that he has and has not found. Found. So that's sort of the theme of these last little group of verses. He's talking about finding things. I found this. I haven't found that. That's sort of the, the poetic device that groups all these verses together. And you've got to look for little clues like that in Ecclesiastes to say, where does a group start, another group of verses end? And all in this section, he's talking about finding things and things that he's found and things that he's not found. So four things that I think are worth pointing out. Number one, his search for wisdom has left him feeling unwise. He says that several times. All this I've tested by wisdom, and I said I will be wise. His mission was to find wisdom, to figure it out. What is the deal with these righteous people suffering and their lives being cut short and these wicked people prolonging their life through wickedness? He set out to find wisdom in this, and he says right here in verse uh, 23, it was far from him. In fact, it's far off, it's deep, it's very deep, and he's not even sure who can find it out. I don't know about you, but that has been my experience in life any time I have begun to study one thing intensely. I mean, when I went to college, I knew a lot. I was smart. And then you get into a couple of college classes and you're like, I don't know anything. What in the world is going on? And then you get through your first accounting class or business class or whatever, and you think, this is easy. This is a piece of cake. What in the world? And then you take advanced cost accounting, and you think, I don't know anything. I'm back at square one. I don't know a dadgum thing. You think to yourself, you know, I, I think I know about the Trinity. I think I have a pretty good grasp on that. But then you start to read about it and think about it and put pieces together, and you say, this is pretty deep stuff. I'm not sure I quite understand all of this, how to make sense of all of these things. I think that's our experience as parents. One of my favorite pastors said, before I had kids, I had lots of theories about parenting. Now I have lots of kids and I don't have any theories about parenting. I sent my wife a meme this week. It said, with your first kid, you learn how to be a parent, but then you have a second kid that's nothing like your first kid. And all the stuff you learned with the first one doesn't count. And you start all over. And then by the time you figure out a couple of kids, they're all gone. The system is flawed. Here, you keep figuring out, I don't know much of anything. Marriage is the same way. Look, couples are dating. They're in love. It's so wonderful. You're married for about 10 minutes, and you're like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> they... I set out to find wisdom. He said to himself, I will be wise. And it's far from me. In fact, it's really far. I don't even know where it's at. And I don't even know who can find it. I have not been able to answer all of the things that I set out to answer. Can I just make a, a semi-related point? I think this will be a similar experience in your life as a follower of Jesus when it comes to sanctification. I think when a person comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... They repent of sin and they say, I'm going to put this away and I'm going to stop doing this and I've got to, got to get rid of this and I've got to get serious. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to be a good Christian. And you do all those things and then about a week later you say, I think I'm worse than I was two weeks ago. And you keep going to church and you keep reading your Bible and you keep going to Sunday school and you keep trying to go to Wednesday night 
services. You do all these things. And like five years down the road, at some point you wake up and you're like, I'm still cussing at people on 42nd Street. Shouldn't I have stopped that by now? I mean, I know he says, I know you've cussed at people. Don't worry about people cursing at you. But I think that's your experience as a Christian. I think that ought to be your experience as a Christian. And I think the reason that that happens to Christians is that the closer you grow to a God who is holy, the more His holiness is going to expose your unholiness. And when you're far from God, you sort of look at yourself in the darkness and you think, well, I'm not that bad. That guy's worse. Not that bad. But then you come into the light. Jesus talks about people coming into the light. They don't like it because their deeds are exposed as evil. And the closer you get to the light, the more you see the spots and stains on your heart. And sometimes the more frustrated you get as a follower of Jesus. And you think, I don't think I'm doing this right. I don't know what's going on. I might need a new church. We might need a new worship band. I might need a new way to pray. I might need a miracle. I might need this. I might need some anointing oil. What, is go- what am I missing? You're not missing anything. That's how it works. That's how it works. It's the same thing with learning. Most of the time, when we're unlearned, we don't even know what we don't know. And many times as you begin to learn, you learn some things, but you also learn what you don't know. And previously, you didn't know what you don't know. So he says, uh, his search for wisdom has left him feeling unwise. Secondly, his search for wisdom gave him clarity about sexual sin. And at this point, you think, what in the world? I thought we were talking about suffering and righteousness and lives getting cut short and lives being extended. And all of a sudden, we're talking about this woman in verse 25 and 26. And her heart is snares and nets and her hands are fetters. And some people escape her. The one who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And on the face of it, when you first read that, he's clearly talking about sexual temptation and sexual sin. There's no question about that. And on the face of it, you read that and you think, is the preacher blaming women for all of this? Well, he just said he wasn't wise, so maybe he is trying to blame women for all this. But I don't think he's blaming women for all this. Notice what he says. He says, the sinner is taken by her. It's not like there's this innocent, righteous guy just minding his own business, and here comes this woman with fetters for hands, and she drags him into sin. It's the sinner who is taken by her. It's not the righteous person who is taken by her and then becomes a sinner, but it's the sinful person who falls for this folly and this wickedness. So I don't think he's just blaming women uh, for sexual temptation, but he makes this observation. His search for wisdom gave him clarity about sexual sin. That may seem like a total one-off to you in this discussion, but... He is talking about righteousness and wickedness. And he is thinking deeply about the fact that none of us are righteous. There's not a righteous person around who doesn't sin. And he's wrestling with these sorts of moral questions and moral issues. And you know what? Sometimes when you're studying the Word and you're thinking about something, sometimes the Word of God or the Spirit of God gives you an insight to something that seems a little bit peripheral. And maybe that's what's happening to him here. But in this course, to answer one question, he doesn't come to a whole lot of clarity about this paradoxical nature of life, but he does come to some clarity about the nature of sexual sin. 
So he offers this warning in verse 25 and 26. Number three, his search for wisdom reveals the flawed nature of man. And by man, I mean men and women, human beings. We have a flawed, sinful nature. So this is verse 27 and 28. It's a little bit wordy, but he says, This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. My soul is sought repeatedly, but I've not found it out fully. Here's what he says in terms of a conclusion. Verse 28b, One man among a thousand I've found, but a woman among all these I've not found. So, you couple that with what he just said about this woman and the handcuffed hands and all the stuff, and you say, so now the preacher tells me one out of a thousand men have it together, and exactly no women have it together. Well, isn't that lovely? Thank you very much, Koheleth the preacher. I don't think this is intended to be a knock on women. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here as you process this one out of a thousand men and no women. If you think Solomon's the author of this book, or if you think the book, even if it's not written directly by Solomon, if he's the inspiration for the book, it could be that Solomon is writing this book, if he's writing these sorts of things, it's probably after he has repented from his great folly and his downfall. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that that happened, does it? It just describes his downfall, and it leaves you hanging. But if he's the author, presumably there was some repentance towards the end of his life after all of that mess, and he wrote some of these things down, and he reached some of these conclusions, and he learned some of these lessons the hard way. And this stuff about no women could be, if there's a Solomon connection here, it could be connected to the pagan women who led him astray into idolatry. This harem of thousands of women that he had, and he says they were all worthless. They led me astray. There wasn't any value in them. So maybe there is a connection there. Here's what I really think. I think there's an idiom, a poetic idiom in this passage that maybe doesn't translate well into English. And I think what Solomon is really saying is, I've been looking for wisdom. I've been, I've been trying to figure this out. He says in verse 28, I haven't found it. I've not found it. And then he gives us this business about one out of a thousand men and zero out of however many women. And I think it's kind of like, have you ever read in the book of Proverbs where the author of Proverbs says there's six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to him? And you understand, it's not like six are bad and the seventh is really bad. That's not the point of the six, seven thing. It's just a poetic way of talking. It's an idiomatic way of talking, saying God hates seven things. And there's a list of seven. They're all terrible. I think what he's saying here is, I haven't found any wise women. And when it comes to the men, man, it's one out of a thousand. And I think that's an idiomatic way for a Hebrew person to say something like, I might say to you, oh, you bought a lottery ticket? Great, your odds are one in a trillion. So I got a chance. One chance. No, you have no chance. That's what I'm saying. No chance. And I think that's what he's driving at because his conclusion, I've searched, I've looked, I've been trying to find it. And he says in verse 28, I haven't found it. My soul has been trying to piece these things together. I haven't found it. One man out of a thousand I've found, a woman among all these I've not found. I think what he's saying is I haven't found anybody. Nobody out there that's wise and that can figure all this stuff out. Number four, 
His search for wisdom has reminded him that God is not responsible for folly or wickedness. God is not responsible. So when you, when you trace it back to the original question, why are the wicked prospering and the righteous are suffering? Well, what he's saying here is, God is not responsible for wickedness or folly. People are responsible for that. I've told you over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is not the first book in the Bible. And you can't make sense of this book if you haven't read the previous books, particularly the book of Genesis, where God created men and women, Adam and Eve, human beings in his own image to know him and to love him. There was no sin in creation as God intended it to be in the beginning. And God was not the one responsible for the wickedness and the sin that entered the universe. The Bible does not lay that blame on God. It lays it on the serpent and it lays it on Adam and it lays it on Eve. They're responsible for their wickedness. And their wickedness and their rebellion brought a curse into the world. And as a result, you and I live in a fallen world and we inherit, the Bible says, a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. And when you're wrestling with questions about folly and wickedness and wisdom and righteousness, but mostly the folly and the wickedness part, one of the guardrails the preacher is putting up, he's just saying, look, God is not responsible for folly and God is not responsible for wickedness. Human beings are responsible for their sin. And I think that's what he dri he's driving at in verse 29. This alone I found that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. They have sought out many schemes. They are responsible for their sin. And ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us they will be held responsible for their sins. Now look, I didn't have room to put this on your notes, but I have a few more thoughts for you just by way of conclusion. So I'm going to put them on the screen. You can write them down if you want to, or you can just take them in as we go. Three points of conclusion. Number one, as we're wrestling with this question, why do bad things happen to good people? All people have sinned and none are righteous. All people have sinned and none are righteous. Romans 3 is the clearest place in all of the scriptures for talking about the doctrine of human sin and human depravity. It is the lengthiest, most detailed, most thorough, most straightforward place in the Bible where you can learn about and read about the condition of mankind. It actually begins in Romans 1, and it continues through Romans 2, and it culminates in Romans 3. And in Romans 3, Paul quotes, amongst many other verses, Ecclesiastes 7.20, which says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. One of the things we have to take away is that all have sinned and none are righteous. Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. It's not the last book in the Bible. If you really want to wrestle with this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the full final biblical answer. That only happened once. Once. It was only one time in human history where the worst of things happened to a truly good person. And he volunteered for it to happen to him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. And human beings who are responsible for their schemes and their sins 
crucified Jesus, the Son of God, and it all happened according to God's predetermined plan and will and counsel, but God was not responsible for the evil. The Jews and the Romans were responsible for their evil. There was one time when something evil happened to a good person, and it's not been in my life and it's not been in your life. It's been in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, wisdom and righteousness are valuable, but they do not prevent suffering. Job's friends forgot this. Job's friends became convinced that if you were wise enough and righteous enough, that you wouldn't suffer. The Pharisees, and even the disciples thought this. Remember, the disciples looked at the guy who was suffering and they said, who sinned, this guy or his parents? What's, what's going on here? Who's, who's to blame for this? They assumed that suffering was directly tied to folly or unrighteousness. It's not always the case. Wisdom and righteousness are valuable, but they do not prevent suffering. And we're going to talk about this more in two weeks. But I like this quote from Zach Eswine. He says, there is no secret formula to life that if you could just figure it out or get in with God well enough, you could make everything happen the way you hope. It's time to relax your grip. I think a lot of us need to let that sink down deep. There's not a thing you can do in your life in terms of righteousness or wisdom that will give you some sort of control over the future or control over God or control over your life so that nothing bad will ever happen. That's not how the game works. So in terms of us trying to control our lives or control the future or control God, it's not going to happen just because we're wise or just because we're righteous. Number three, worship is intended to refocus our hearts to fear God. To fear God. I think it's perfectly okay for you to wrestle with questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? I think it's perfectly okay for you to wrestle with questions like Asaph asked in Psalm 73, where he says, Lord, why are the, why are the wicked prospering? I don't understand it, God. Why are they prospering? I think it's perfectly okay for you to wrestle with the question that the preacher is wrestling with. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. And let me tell you, there's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And that seems backwards when I look at the promises of God. It seems all upside down. It's okay to wrestle with those questions if you wrestle with those questions within biblical guardrails and biblical parameters. And the most important one of all of them is fearing God. And the preacher talks about that in this passage. He also talks about it in chapter 3, in chapter 5, in chapter 12, at the conclusion of the book. Fearing God is central to understanding what we can gain for all of our toil under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's essential that we fear God. And it was essential in what we read for Asaph earlier. And if you go back and look at Psalm 73, Asaph was wrestling with all these same questions that we're talking about. All the same questions. And he really got ticked off with God. He was angry with God. And he's thinking all these things in his head, and he says, God, I was about to say them all out loud and just vomit all this mess up on you. And he said, if I had done that, I would have been a fool. In fact, when I was embittered in my soul with all of this stuff, he says, I was brutish. I was being animalistic. 
And it was when he went to the sanctuary that the light bulb went off. It was not that he went to the sanctuary and all of his questions got answered. All of your questions are not going to be answered. But it was when he went to the sanctuary that his focus was put back on the Lord and that he feared the Lord and that all the things he was wrestling with were reframed in the different light. That's the call of Ecclesiastes. Ask these questions, wrestle with these questions, but do it with a heart that fears the Lord. Father, as your people, we are thankful. Um, there's much that we don't understand. There's much in this world that we don't get, we're not able to make sense of. There's things that leave us scratching our head and puzzled and confused and perplexed. And Father, as we wrestle with these things, we pray that we would wrestle with these things with a framework of biblical truth around us. That we would recognize our sinfulness uh, and the consequences of our sin. That we live in a fallen world. God, we pray that we would wrestle with these things with a healthy, right, biblical fear of you. And God, we pray that you would make us people who walk by faith, not by sight. We pray that you would use worship as we gather together on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings to refocus our hearts and reframe our thinking, uh, to bring us back to truth, uh, to conform our minds to what is true and right rather than being conformed to the, the thinking of the world. Father, we're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and we're grateful that uh, the one righteous person who walked this earth willingly laid down his life at the hands of wicked and godless, unrighteous men that we might have life. We thank you for Ecclesiastes, but we also thank you that it's not the final word in the Bible. We thank you for the hope and the life that we have in Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.